0: Uh, i got a couple things. First off, you are our test audience this morning because with the decorations the way they are, we thought the sun was just going to like kill half of you in the room, but it's doing pretty good. So yay, thank God for the time of year and the earth sitting the way it is and the room being good for us. All right, uh, a couple things. One, starting when we start the book of Genesis, the third week in January, we are going to start three services on Sunday mornings, obviously. Okay, we need them. So the first one's going to start at 815 Every single one of you that is clapping better have your butt here and in a seat, all right? I'm going to write your names. I'm going to be calling and you'll be like, hey, 815, where are you? I'm here. If I'm going to lose an hour of sleep, someone else is paying too, all right? So uh, December 11th, which is three Sundays this week and then two Sundays after, that's the last Sunday night service that we'll be doing on December 11th that night. So after that, no more Sunday night services going to Sunday mornings. I wrote a couple things on my hand here. I think that was it. Oh, yeah. So we have a... We have a, a guest speaker talking to this morning. He, he actually goes here. His name is Jonathan Whitaker. And I'm going to just give you his sense of humor. At Element, we are not politi- political at all. We believe Jesus, period. He is the answer to everything. Jesus. Okay? What's Jesus? That, that's what we believe. But sometimes we like making fun of people, too. And so we, uh, he made these shirts. That's right. On the bottom it says the 100% gospel community. There you go. Anybody next extra large? Anybody? There you go. This is Jonathan Whitaker. Am I on? Alright,
1: open mic night has officially begun. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, he asked me to make a few announcements before I start. First, apparently there's an app called Uversion. If you have a phone, an iPhone or an iPad, my phone has a cord. Uh, <laughs> Uversion, of course, is an app that uh, will give you any version of the Bible you like so you can follow along. Uh, second, uh, he asked me to tell you that uh, you are the problem and Jesus is the solution. <laughs> so I start with a little bit of bad news. Uh, my Christmas tree committed Harry Carey last night. So don't worry, nobody was hurt. But uh, we lost a few ornaments, but, and I guess we got an early start on the pumpkin killing, or the <laughs> Christmas tree killing. So please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. work. Father God, uh, please open our hearts to your word this morning, and bless us as we seek to honor you this Christmas season. Please have a seat. All right. How many decisions do you make on a daily basis? You can participate. 10, 50, 100? When you think about it, uh, your decisions range from how am I going to save for retirement to should I hold the door for this guy to is it sane to go shopping on Black Friday? (laughs) The decisions really start to add up. Each decision, great or small, is based on the aggregate of your life experience coupled with your values and your specific beliefs, be you a Republican or Democrat, a soldier or pacifist, a Trojan or Bruin, we all hold a set of specific beliefs. For most of us, it's easy to say what we believe. Um, You know, depending upon what groups we're affiliated with, it's easy for us to compile a list of, of, you know, the what's. Some some go as far as to make a, a dossier of group beliefs. Take me, for instance. I'm a Mississippi State Bulldog, and as such... I believe that the Bulldogs are the best football team in the Southeastern Conference. But more than that, since the SEC is the best college football conference, Mississippi State is the best team in college football. But beyond that, since college football is the best type of football, Mississippi State is therefore the best football team. But I'm going to take it a step further. Since football is the best type of sport, Mississippi State is therefore the best athletic team on the planet. And all God's people said. No? <laughs> so the point here is it's easy for us to establish what we believe. The real question is why? Why do I believe so fervently that MSU is the best football team on the planet? Besides the fact that they're probably God's favorite team. If pressed, I couldn't give you an answer that would lead you to the same conclusion that I just espoused at nauseum. So why then do we as Christians sound like a bunch of raving Mississippi State fans when it comes to defending our beliefs? We're known for what we believe. We block vote our moral beliefs. And worse yet, we're criticized as hypocrites for violating our beliefs. It seems to me that if we're going to go through all the trouble of being identified as a priesthood of Christ followers, that we could at least provide the basis for our beliefs when asked. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, but in in your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason that the hope is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Please open your Bibles to Philippians 3.7. This morning, I want you to consider this. The ability to confidently defend your beliefs is a necessary discipline for the serious Christ follower. Moreover, the pursuit of biblical defense for your beliefs is a transformative process that will ultimately result in wisdom. And a life that more closely resembles that of our Lord and Savior. Paul once said, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So today we're dealing with apologetics and I I want to deal with the question why? Not why do I believe. For me, that's, that's easy. God called me and I answered his call. The question I ask myself is this. Why do I hold the particular beliefs around which I have shaped my life? Is the motivation from God or is it from something else? But more than that, how can I defend beliefs which I don't understand? Here's the question I want you to ask yourself. Why must I be able to defend my beliefs? Paul said knowing Christ and being transformed into, into his image was his motivation, and Peter said we need to be able to give a reason for, for why we hope. So whether we're sharing truth or trying to gain knowledge, we've got to do some homework if we want to properly understand our beliefs. So like a lawyer in a courtroom attempts to establish the facts, Christian apologists um, makes arguments to establish that his beliefs are both truthful and trustworthy. Um, the difference between the courtroom and the, and the apology is, while a lawyer has to rely on the testimony of men, a Christian apologist uh, derives his jurisprudence from the Holy Scriptures and the well-recorded uh, record of the words of God. Okay, so I said apologetics, ad nauseum, and jurisprudence in my opening remarks. Go Bulldogs. So I don't know if any of you are particularly argumentative. I'm not. Don't say anything, Jennifer. But like any good argument, I, I, like to, uh, I like to start with the facts. Call me old-fashioned, but I like to know what I believe is true. So once we've established the facts, we can argue from a position of strength. So I've heard it, I've heard it said, or asked, rather, shouldn't faith alone be the basis for the multitude of beliefs that we hold as Christians? Okay, now I don't want to be harsh, but if you feel that way, You lack appreciation for the immense amount of evidence that our Lord and Savior has purposefully left us for for our instruction, comfort, and Savior in the form of the Holy Scriptures. The Bible spans thousands of years, covers topics such as law, history, science, philosophy, poetry, and song. And God did not preserve this record so we could sweetly and innocently believe what some guy in a pulpit teaches us. Sorry, Aaron. He gave us this so we could know his character, understand his loving kindness, and understand why we believe. In Proverbs, Solomon tells us, Fear the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom. And he goes on to say, Do not let the kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck, and write them on the tablet of your heart. His father also knew this when he said, David. (laughs) Not David, but David. (laughs) Yeah, different different David, not this guy. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the loving kindness of the Lord towards those who fear him. So, in in light of those verses, consider this. How, then, will we know why we believe if we don't have wisdom? How will we gain wisdom and experience God's loving kindness if we don't fear him? How can we fear him if we don't know him? And how can we know him if we don't seek him? Seeking God is the first step to making a cogent, apologetic argument. Apologetics connotes using faith to defend a tenet of faith. So where do we start gathering the evidence for the reason we hope? So, like our intro verse, Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So you could look around. That's a good place to start. But I'm going to suggest to you that if you're going to establish a log- logical argument for a Christian belief, the logical starting point is a scripture. Let me show you what I mean by making an apologetic argument to that point. So my argument is this: the Bible is a trustworthy document and should be the basis for all underline that of your of your beliefs pertaining to the one true God. Take a little sip here. Okay. I believe that because Jesus believes that. And here's how I came to that conclusion. So, I'm not going to reiterate Psalm 19.1, but the creation demands the existence of a creator. Please turn to Isaiah chapter 53. So next, consider this. The Bible has a 100% proven track record for prophecy. It's the only text on earth that can claim that. So this lends credence to the fact that it's either a statistical impossibility, or it's the inspired word of God. Interestingly, the overwhelming uh, focus of that prophecy is the Messiah. So in Isaiah 53, it says, Surely our grief he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we were healed. Okay, so this and 300 other Messianic prophecies were predicted before Christ was born. And nearly 500 years later, John 19, rec- 1 records this. Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. But one of the soldiers pierced him through with a spear and immediately blood and, and water began to flow out. So uh, half a millennium separation from prophecy to fulfillment. So the oldest complete copy of that Isaiah that we have um, in existence is the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they predate Christ by over a hundred years. Twelve disciples and thousands of witnesses saw him fulfill every single prophecy. Jesus himself even predicted his own death and resurrection. And then, when he was raised from the dead, over 500 witnesses um, saw him in his resurrection body. So, to me, it's clear that that there is a God. Jesus was fully man and is fully God. Therefore, since Jesus is God and his his testimony is trustworthy, this is what he has to say about the trustworthiness of scripture. So turn to Matthew chapter 22. I know you're not supposed to do this, but I'm going to read the voices in the Bible. So, sorry about that. So, okay, this is the scene here is the Pharisees and and Jesus are having a theological argument. And they're trying to trap Jesus. So, they say it like this, and I'm sure they did it in this voice asking teacher Moses said that if a man dies having no children his brother is next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother now there were seven brothers with us and the first died the first died and also the second and the third on down to the seventh last of all the woman died in the resurrection therefore whose wife of the seven will she be for they had all married her okay now we've already established that Jesus is God And one thing about the character of God is he reserves the right to make new revelation at any time. But Jesus doesn't. Instead, he rebukes them from the book of Exodus. He says, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So, Jesus not only defends his faith, but he corrected a misinterpretation of God's character and at the same time demonstrated the trustworthiness of Scripture. Therefore, to my original point, the Bible is a trustworthy document uttered and believed by the living God and should be the basis for all your beliefs pertaining to the one true God. And there's a number of ways you could crack that nut, but that's just how I did it. Okay, so here's what I want you to think about. The pursuit of your beliefs through Bible study will transform your life to a life that resembles Christ. So a few weeks ago, some of you guys were here when Dave Kraft spoke, and he mentioned one of my favorite uh, Bible scholars. I know you guys all have a whole list of your favorite Bible scholars, but mine, my favorite is uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. So McGee was the chair of the Bible department at Biola University. If you're not familiar with him, know this. In 1967, he started a radio program called Through the Bible. And over the course of about five years, he went over every single verse of the Bible uh, in order and explained them. And he did this using his, his, Bible stu- his, his vast biblical knowledge um, and, and just daily Bible study. So all in all, uh, and the, the transcripts of this were taken and turned into a five-volume book, which weighs about 25 pounds. I personally have not spoken 25 pounds worth of words in my life. Aaron probably has. But let's just say this. He was a prolific commentator. So, though he died in 1988, that his, uh, his radio show is still nationally syndicated. I've, I've actually verified this. I heard it in Texas and here. That means it's nationally syndicated, right? <laughs> okay, but he said this. Faith produces something. Even your life after salvation doesn't build up a righteousness that has anything to do with your salvation. Your faith in Christ is a motivation for you to live for God. Okay, so we've established that how you live is based on what you believe. It's the knowing that what you believe that comes from gathering evidence in scripture. A recent poll by the Barna Group indicated that 90% of American households own a Bible, and 86% of those folks believe that the Bible is either sacred or holy. And then a full 70% of the the group surveyed said that they believe that the Bible was the inspired word of God, which makes me ask this question. If people really believe that they have access to the words of God, why aren't they reading it? Okay, so there are three apologists in the Bible that I want to deal with. Uh, Paul, Ezra, who's the author of Chronicles, and of course, Jesus himself. Paul once said in Romans, Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised Jews by faith and the uncircumcised us through faith, unless some of you are Jewish, do we then nullify the law of God through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. The law of the Old Testament is scripture in its purest form, and thus an excellent basis to build an argument for your beliefs, and better yet, understand Christ's character. Jesus himself said, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a single yoke or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is accomplished. He goes on to say why it's so important, by telling us, If you annul one of the laws, then you will lose your place in the in the kingdom of heaven or be called the least but whoever teaches the law shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven so ezra was a man who believed in the power of scriptures to transform him and his people into a nation that served god you remember you'll remember that ezra uh, was a leader in post-babylonian captivity palestine and as a leader of what has been called the second exodus He was a scribe and a scholar, among the most respected of his day, and his his claim to fame is he established the the formal study of the Torah in Israel. So he knew that a a city needed strong walls uh, to be safe, but it needed the loving kindness of the Lord Almighty uh, to to really thrive. So he was an authority on Scripture because he studied. Um, In Psalms, uh, Ezra gives us a song of praise for the power of meditating on Scripture and God's law. Psalm 119. It's both practical and poetic. Ezra's prayer lays out a path for believers that, as Paul says, that I may know the power of the resurrection. So simply put, the point of being a Christian is not just going to heaven. The point is to be transformed by the power of Jesus so your life will resemble his. Psalm 119 is practically a roadmap for this. So if we take this seriously and, and study the Bible the way Ezra did, it will not only understand why we believe, but it will demand others to ask, who do we believe? So, let's quickly go through it, and consider this question as we do. How does God transform my life through his word? And the first way is holiness. Uh, Psalm one nineteen one: how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So up front, he just says it. If you want to live a sinless life, walk in the law of the Lord. And we can argue the practicality of living a sinless life, but... The implication here is, if you want to walk in the law of the Lord, you've got to know what it is. And he hits it a number of times, so I'm, going to, I'm only going to hit it once. The next notion is purity. In verse 9, he asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? So this is basically the Socratic method. He's, our, we, he's, our, he's asking us what we already know, but then he just goes on to tell us. By keeping it according to your word. All right, here's your, uh, here's your memory verse from, from the uh, vacation Bible school. Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. This is the notion of character. God will change your character to his character through the study and meditation on his word. He goes on to express the joy of getting to know God through scripture while, while receiving instruction. Your testimonies are, are, de- are my delight. They are my counselors. So I've sort of felt this in my own life. Recently I've been given the, the privilege of leading a gospel community here at Element. There's a lot to love about this group. Good friends, good food, we have fun times, and rousing discussions of scripture. But the best for me is the accountability that's given me. As I prepare for, to, to lead the lessons in our gospel community, I'm spending time with God. And better yet, he's spending time with me and transforming my life. And I actually kind of enjoy it, to my surprise. Um, I've got many godly relatives and friends, all of whom who give, give me wise counsel. But when I'm with God on a daily basis... That's transformative. I don't want to swear and gossip. I don't want to think about filth. I don't want to focus on myself like an entitled child. God tempers me through his words. So here's the next idea I want to hit, renewal. Verse 28 says, My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your words. So my grief came from conviction, conviction of living a life that in no way resembled that of a redeemed man. I was saved at age 11, and I think a lot, of, a lot of you guys, and I, I hope not as many, uh, can relate to this. But I uh, went on to kind of live my life however I wanted to. You know, I had my fire insurance. So I was good to go. Have you ever asked yourself this question or, or had this experience? Somebody's been surprised to find out that you're a Christian, and not in a good way. Paul said in Romans 6, what, what should we say then? Are we to continue sinning that grace may increase? Praise God that grace has increased so much. What a comfort verse 28 is to me. God will strengthen me according to his words. So for those of you who are as I am, a sinner who wants to change, God is changing me and he's going to change you too. Okay, so raise your hand or nod or wink or pick your nose or something if, you, if you've got this problem. Sharing your faith with people terrifies you or at least makes you a little nervous. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, Yeah, me too. You ask yourselves, like, what will I say? What if I'm rejected? Take heart. Verse 41 and 42 are for you. May your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word, so that I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. It's the idea of wisdom gained through study. Think of salvation here in two ways. First, eternal salvation. Then, read it in context. If you're challenged by someone because of your faith, God has already come to your rescue. You don't need to invent new words to convince a nonbeliever. He's already given it to you. Okay, so here's my example. I was approached by a couple of uh, neatly dressed young gentlemen one day in South Texas while out uh, washing my car. I don't want to disparage them, but let's just say their doctrine was a little more uh, recently minted than mine. <laughs> so we spoke for a few minutes, um, I let them speak their piece, and then I attempted to give them the gospel. It was pretty clear that we had reached an impasse, um, and and the soap was basically baked onto my car at this point. So at this point, I offered them a Coke, which they politely declined. (laughs) All right, that was just me, and I'm kidding, of course. Because if you feed them, they just keep coming back. All right, all right, all right. (laughs) All right, it was at the end of this encounter, Uh, that i got that they got back on script and they offered me this uh this challenge and you've probably gotten it too if you know who i'm talking about ask god in your prayers to show you that the book of blank is the one true way and he will give you the peace that it is i said thank you i won't be doing that and i sent them on their way so i've considered that conversation a number of times uh, since that day and to be honest with you it's a bit of a mixed bag i gave them the gospel but i really could have done a better job and oddly i uh I gave them the Great Commission since they'd be going around for the next two years, which was a bit of a misplaced suggestion since there's a number of other things you need to do, like be saved, believe jibs, you know. So I'm not sure what I was thinking there. But anyways, here's the problem. We as Christians are often ill-equipped to explain the truth the way the world is equipped to explain the lie. With more years of study and prayer under my belt, I feel now that I would be so much better equipped to help those young men. I want to be like Paul, able to competently defend my beliefs and with grace to the, to the sinner and also rebuke sin. Looking back, I, I, I knew then, but I can explain now, that their challenge was obviously a blasphemous suggestion. It's challenging God to prove himself. Jesus himself told Satan in the desert. On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see? I don't have to ask God to supernaturally show me what to believe. He's already told me. God has given me 66 inspired books of what to believe. These guys needed to hear the truth, and I needed to proclaim it boldly. Ezra bears witness to this fact in verse 46 of Psalm 119. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and not be ashamed. It's the idea of a confident witness. Scripture's powerful. When we seek to fill our minds with God's words and not our own, We'll truly be prepared to defend our faith. Ephesians 6 famously talks about the full armor of God, he calling, calling the scriptures the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's good to know that as Christians, we have access to the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was in the desert and tempted by, tempted by Satan himself, he didn't call down the angels to deal with Satan. He countered every lie that Jesus told uh, with the word of God. For 40 days, Satan tried everything but he could, not withstand a single, he could not withstand the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, so earlier I asked, does the fear of a little rejection or failure um, make you nervous about sharing your faith with others? So isn't it curious that people who've already um, received salvation from the God of the universe could be a little nervous about sharing his word? The Spirit dwells within us as Christ's followers. So he's going to do all the work. We know that. After Jesus died, he said, I'm going to send my, he said, "John, John baptized you with water, but soon I'll baptize you with the spirit and make you my witnesses to the world. So there it is. We have the Holy Spirit within us. The word of God is the sword. I'm not a mathematical genius, but even I can do that equation. The pursuit of evidence for your beliefs in scripture will absolutely embolden your witness. Paul's a guy that you're all familiar with. Um, and he's a great example of apologetics in action. So you'll remember uh, the story of his conversion. Paul was a Pharisee, uh, He uh, and he was on his way to persecute Jews. I, w- I won't hash it out more than that, but, but basically he was a man who understood the law better than anyone. He's different w- from us in, in a couple of ways. Number one, he understood, understood scriptures better than anyone. It's hard, I don't think a lot of us can say that. But the the second way he's different from you and I is he didn't have the Holy Spirit until the resurrected Christ got a hold of him on the Damascus Road. And it's at that point that all that head knowledge about Scripture moved to his heart, and he truly understood the power and the saving grace of God. So in the later years of of, uh, Paul's life, after his two missionary journeys, Paul was arrested. After his arrest, he was given an audience with the magistrates of the Roman court, each at a higher level than the last. We can liken this to... Um, the U.S. court system where you make your appeals. Well, anyways, Paul made his appeals from Jerusalem to Rome. A- at one point, he's, uh, he's given an audience with King Agrippa. And ch- turn to Acts chapter 26. So at, at all these encounters, uh, Paul just simply and elegantly gives the gospel. He's, he was, by all accounts, an intelligent man. But his brilliant legal skill was not from his uh, ability to maneuver in the courtroom, it's that he spoke using scripture, uh, talking about God's words and not his own. So when he's talking to the king, he simply tells his story of his conversion on the Damascus Road. But he does this by quoting Jesus's words. You'll notice in your Bible, this section is read. When we, when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of their sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified through faith in me. All right, now I don't want to geek out on you too much, but this is pretty cool. Paul just defended his faith to a man who holds his life in the balance, and he did so by quoting Jesus. All right, now here's the really geeky part. While Paul was quoting Jesus, Jesus was quoting Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. Jesus declared and defended his own divinity by quoting Old Testament scripture while in his resurrected body, establishing once and for all that Jesus is God and God believes the scriptures. That made it pretty easy for Paul, because all he had to do was point to Jesus. Hopefully, you and I will never be hauled before the courts to defend our beliefs. I mean, we live in America, right? Our Christian brothers in Egypt and Iran aren't so lucky. Just ask Yusuf Nadarkhani, you may have read that Yusuf is an Iranian minister currently held on trial by the Ayatollah and the Iranian courts. His options are convert to Islam or be condemned as a heretic. So far, Yusuf has basically said, There is one true God, and Jesus is his son. Yusuf will likely be condemned, condemned to death, but he's blessed because he most likely understands what Paul was talking about when he said he longed to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, even if it meant his death. It's at the hardest times when we see the scripture coming to the aid of Christians in need. You'll recall that all but one of the disciples willingly gave their lives for their faith in Christ. God spared John's life through a miracle and delivered him to the Isle of Patmos where he gave him the revelation. But his brother James was sentenced to death in 44 A.D. by Herod Agrippa. His resolve was so powerful and his testimony was so great that his accuser, Renounce his accusation and joined J- James in martyrdom. What would cause a man to turn from, a, from being an accuser to one who would willingly give up his life? God's word is both powerful and transformative. God's, God hasn't asked us to convince anyone to believe in him, simply to, to be prepared to give an account for the reason that we hope. Our belief in Jesus is worth defending, and God has sent us as his believers to be a voice to the lost world. It's no surprise that Paul asks the following in Romans. For whoever, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, Beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. Each in our own way, God has called us as his people to be his voice to a lost world. So when we commit ourselves to understanding our beliefs through the study of his word, an interesting thing happens. We can't help but tell others. So the band's going to come forward now and uh, lead us in a time of, uh, of worship. And it's for this hope and the good news that we come to communion each week. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, consider how good God is to have left us such a clear record of his instruction and of the Holy Scriptures. We believe that sharing tithes and offerings is part of our worship, to show him that we are a grateful people and to honor him for his sacrifice. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we love you and long to be transformed into your image. Strengthen us according to your words and grant us wisdom as we seek you in your holy scripture. Amen.